Chapter 15, Part 1 of Angels of the Battlefield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bo Wood. Angels of the Battlefield by George Barton. Satterley Hospital, Part 1. A sketch of the remarkable labors of Sister Mary Gonzaga and her work as the executive head of a hospital where 50,000 sick and wounded soldiers were cared for. The chaplain kept busy preparing men for death. Bishop Wood visits the hospital and administers the sacrament of confirmation. A soldier who was saved from the stocks. A Veteran's Tribute As stated in the previous chapter, many carloads of wounded soldiers were conveyed from Gettysburg to the Satterley Hospital in Philadelphia. Sister Mary Gonzaga, who is in charge of this institution, deserves special mention in connection with her work during the war. If nobility of character, earnestness and purity of purpose great natural executive ability, together with unaffected piety and humility, tell for anything. This sister will rank high in the bright galaxy of self-sacrificing women whose lives have illuminated the history of Catholic sisterhoods in the United States, celebrating her golden jubilee, April 12, 1877, she could even then look back over a series of years in the course of which she has been schoolteacher, nurse, mother superior, head of a large orphan asylum, and the executive of a great military hospital where nearly 50,000 sick and wounded soldiers received the self-sacrificing attention of a staff of 60 or 70 Sisters of Charity. Sister Gonzaga, just before her death, was credited with being the oldest living Sister of Charity in the United States. She spent the tranquil evening of a busy and eventful life as the Mother Emeritus of St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum, one of the magnificent charities of the City of Brotherly Love. This venerable woman's name in the world was Mary Agnes Grace. She came from a respected Baltimore family, being born in that city in 1812. She was baptized in St. Patrick's Church, and there and in a Christian home received her preliminary religious training. In December 1823, she was sent to St. Joseph's Academy, Emmitsburg, Maryland, where she proved to be a most diligent pupil. The four years she spent in this institution helped to make that certain foundation upon which her subsequent successful career was built. She had early conceived the idea of retiring from the world and devoting her life entirely to the service of God. Accordingly, on March 11, 1827, she was received into the community of the Sisters of Charity 
of St. Vincent de Paul. In April 1828, in company with two other sisters, she opened a school in Harrisburg. On the 25th of March, 1830, she made her holy vows. In May 1830, Sister Gonzaga was sent to Philadelphia to St. Joseph's Orphan Asylum, with which her future was to be so intimately connected. The asylum at that time was situated on 6th Street near Spruce, adjoining Holy Trinity Church. On October 24, 1836, the institution was removed to the site of the present asylum at the southwest corner of 7th and Spruce Streets. Four sisters and 51 children comprised the population then. The sisters were Sister Petronilia, Sister Theodosia, Sister Mary John, and Sister Mary Gonzaga. Sister Petronilia died on August 3, 1843, sincerely mourned, and was succeeded by Sister Gonzaga, who remained in charge until October 1844. Here she went on with her good work, placid and calm, in the midst of the worrying turbulence of anti-Catholic bitterness and persecution, which at times threatened the lives of innocent women and children. In the latter part of 1844, she was sent to Donaldsonville, Louisiana, as assistant in the novitiate, which at that time was for the purpose of graduating Southern postulants. In the following year, Sister Gonzaga was transferred to New Orleans. On March 19, 1851, she returned to St. Joseph's Asylum in Philadelphia to reassume her former charge. In 1855, she was sent in an administrative capacity to the Mother House of the Order in France, where she remained for a year, obtaining and imparting much valuable information regarding the work and duties of the sisters. In May 1856, she returned to the United States, going to St. Joseph's Emmitsburg, where she filled the office of procuratrix. In January 1857, she returned to Philadelphia, taking charge of her old love, St. Joseph's Asylum, for the third time. The beginning of the Civil War a few years later was to mark one of the most eventful epochs in the career of Sister Gonzaga and to develop extraordinary gifts and qualities of administration. The Satterley Military Hospital was established in Philadelphia. Dr. Walter F. Attlee, an honored physician of the Quaker City, felt that the interest of the government and of the soldiers would be benefited if the Sisters of Charity were installed as nurses in the Army Hospital. He had several interviews with Surgeon General Hammond and with the Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton. As a result of this, the Sisters of Charity were invited to assume charge. On June 9, 1862, Sister Gonzaga, accompanied by 40 sisters, assembled from all parts of the United States, 
entered upon the duties in the hospital it is difficult to estimate the good work done by the sisters during the period they spent in this place which has been aptly styled the shadow of the valley of death in those three momentous years the sisters nursed and cared for upwards of fifty thousand soldiers only those who have had the care of the sick can begin to estimate the amount of ceaseless labor and patience involved in such a vast undertaking the sick and wounded comprised both union and confederate soldiers the gentleness of the sisters soon endeared them to all under their charge in securing the necessary number of sisters a requisition was made by surgeon general hammond for twenty-five from the mother house at emmitsburg they were sent to philadelphia at once to take their places in the new hospital to quote one of the sisters the place was so large that they could scarcely find the entrance the workmen about the grounds looked at the sisters in amazement thinking perhaps that they belonged to some kind of flying artillery at twelve o'clock they repaired to the kitchen for dinner and by the time this meal was finished they found plenty of work had been planned for them one hundred and fifty men who had been brought in were in the wards all of the sisters went to work and prepared nourishment for the men most of whom looked at them in astonishment not knowing what kind of persons they might be but among the number was a french soldier named pierre who immediately recognized the garb of the daughters of charity in a short time the number of patients was increased to nine hundred on the sixteenth of august over fifteen hundred of the sick and wounded were brought to the hospital most of them from the battle of bull run or manassas many had died on the way from sheer exhaustion others were in a dying state so that the chaplain was kept busy in preparing the men for death the wards being now crowded tents were erected in the yard to accommodate over one thousand patients for the sisters at that time had not less than forty-five hundred in the hospital when they first went to satterley their quarters were very limited consisting of one small room about seven feet square which served as a chapel another somewhat larger answered the purpose of a dormitory by night and community room by day dr hayes soon supplied four more rooms one of which was for a chapel the soldiers who were very much interested took up a collection among themselves and gave the money to the sisters requesting them to purchase ornaments or whatever was needed for the chapel they did so at different times until they finally had a good supply of everything that was necessary they even secured new seats and sanctuary carpet the men stipulated that when the hospital was closed the sisters should take everything for the orphans in april eighteen sixty three right reverend bishop wood 
administered the sacrament of confirmation in the little chapel to thirty-one soldiers, most of whom were converts, and two of whom were over forty years of age. In February 1864, forty-four others received the sacrament of confirmation. One man was unable to leave his bed, and the bishop was kind enough to go to the ward in his robes to confirm that man. After the ceremony, the prelate distributed little souvenirs of his visit, and then asked the Catholics who were present to approach the railing of the altar. To his great astonishment, as well as satisfaction, all in the chapel came forward. He gave a little exhortation and then dismissed them. Mass was said at six o'clock in the morning, and many of the patients were in the chapel at half-past four in order to secure seats. This was generally the case on great festivals, although some of the crippled men had to be carried in the arms of their comrades. At three o'clock on Sundays and festivals, vespers were sung in the chapel, in which the patients felt quite privileged to join. In Lent, they had the Way of the Cross, and in May, the devotions of the month of Mary. The chapel was always crowded at these times. The soldiers took great delight in decorating the chapel at Christmas with green boughs festooned with roses. Indeed, it always gave them great pleasure to help the sisters in any kind of work, and they often interfered when they found their kind nurses engaged in laborious duties. In May 1864, a jubilee was celebrated at the hospital with great success. Cases of smallpox had occurred in the hospital from time to time, but the patients were removed as soon as possible to the smallpox hospital, which was some miles from the city. The poor men were very much distressed because they were compelled to leave the sisters. It was heart-rending when the ambulances came to hear the men begging to be left at Satterley, even if they were entirely alone, provided the sisters were near them. The sisters offered their services several times to attend these poor men, but were told that the government had ordered them away to prevent the contagion from spreading. At last, the surgeon in charge obtained permission to keep the smallpox patients in a camp some distance from the hospital. The tents were made very comfortable with good large stoves to heat them. The next thing was to have the sisters in readiness in case their services should be required. Every sister was courageous and generous enough to offer her services, but it was thought prudent to accept one who had had the disease. From November 1864 until May 1865, there were upwards of 90 cases. About nine or ten of these died. Two of the men had the black smallpox and were baptized before they expired. The sisters had entire charge of the poor sufferers, as the physicians seldom paid them a visit. 
permitting the sisters to do anything they thought proper for them. They were much benefited and avoided being marked by drinking freely of tea made of pitcher plant. The patients seemed to think that the sisters were not like other human beings, or they would not attend to such loathsome and contagious diseases. One day, a sister was advising an application for a man who had been poisoned in the face. He would not see the doctor because, he said, he did not do him any good. The sister told him that the remedy she advised had cured a sister who was poisoned. The man looked astonished and said, A sister? She answered, Yes. Why, he said, I did not know that sisters ever got anything like that. She told him that they were human beings and liable to take diseases as well as anyone else. But I believe they are not, he said, for the boys often say they must be different from anyone else or from other people for they never get sick, and they do for us what no other person would do. They are not afraid of the fever, smallpox, or anything else. The men had more confidence in the sisters' treatment than in that of the physicians. The doctors themselves acknowledged that they would have lost more of their patients had it not been for the sisters' watchful care and knowledge of medicine. One occurrence will show the good feeling of the men towards the sisters. One of the convalescent patients had been in town on a furlough and while there had indulged too freely in liquor. On his return, he went quietly to bed. A sister, not knowing this, went with his medicine as usual and touched his bedclothes to arouse him. The poor man, being stupid and sleepy, thought his comrades were teasing him, and lifting up his arm, gave a terrific blow, sending the sister and medicine across the room. Several of the convalescent patients seized their comrade by the collar and would surely have choked him to death if the sister had not compelled them to desist. However, he was soon reported by the men and sent under an escort to the guardhouse where stocks were prepared for him. Nothing could be done for his release as the surgeon in charge was absent. As soon as that official returned, the sister begged that the poor man might return to his ward and be also free from all other punishment as well as from imprisonment in the guardhouse. The surgeon complied with the sister's request, but in order to make a strong impression on the soldier, he dispatched an order to all the wards, which was read at roll call as follows. This man was released only by the earnest entreaty of the sisters. Otherwise, he would have been punished with the utmost severity. When the poor man came to himself and learned what he had done, he begged a thousand pardons and promised never to take liquor again. End of chapter 15, part 1. Recording by Bo Wood.